All right, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5. So if you'd like to turn there so long, Galatians 5. And I'm going to give you the outline for this chapter, Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6. We're going to talk about the law of bondage or how the law brings bondage. Verses 1 to 6, law of bondage. Verses 7 to 12, leaven of liars. The leaven of liars. Verses 13 to 15, liberty in Christ. Liberty in Christ. And then verses 16 down to 26, sorry, verse um, to the end of the chapter. Uh, this is kind of a long one. Led of the Spirit to overcome the lust of the flesh. So I don't know if you want to write that whole thing out, but led of the Spirit would be enough, but that is how to overcome the lust of the flesh. All right, Galatians 5 in verse number 1. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So stand fast in the liberty. You have freedom in Christ. You have been set free from your sin. You're no longer under that system of the law. Now bear in mind, 1 Corinthians 15 says the strength of sin is the law. So somebody who is under that system of the law their sinful nature will continuously rebel against that law. And that's why the strength of sin is the law. So we have been set free from the system of the law, and thus we have been set free from the power of sin at the same time. And that freedom we need to take seriously. Paul says, stand fast in it. Don't let these Judaizers, these false preachers, don't let them steal that from you. Don't get tangled up in their uh, debate and in their, their arguments behind Judaism. Stand fast for the truth, which is that in Christ you, you have liberty. Here in South Africa, anywhere in the world, all nations, they, they have armies to protect their freedom. You don't want anybody taking your freedom away from you. And the same is true with this. Why would we want anyone to take our freedom away from us, the freedom we have in Christ? We are free to serve Him, no longer slaves in bondage to our sinful natures. That's something we should take seriously. Fight the good fight of faith. Stand fast for the truth. Now he says in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, we have to take this within its context. If you just took, uh, take verse 2 by itself, then what do we do with Timothy? Right? Timothy got circumcised after he was saved. So if we just took verse 2 with no context, then we would say Timothy got circumcised and then Christ was of no use to him. Well, that's obviously not true. There's a greater point that Paul is making here. And you have to keep in mind, since chapter 3, Paul has been talking about this system of the law and how it compares to the system of grace or faith. In verse 2, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you are trusting the law to justify you and make you right in the sight of God, then what you're basically saying is, Jesus, I don't need you. I will do it myself. 
Now, you just refer back to chapter 2, verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You see, He profits us nothing. So if someone is teaching that the system of the law is the way to God, that's how you obtain a right standing in the sight of God, then that person also believes Jesus dying on the cross was absolutely useless. So that, he's just reiterating that point in chapter 5. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 3. So Christ shall profit you nothing, and then he's going to support that. Verse 3, I testify again. So he's, he's repeating this point. I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. This is a reminder of chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, I'll read it for you to remind you. For as many as are of the works of the law, they're under that system, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So he's just reminding them, guys, if that's the system that somebody clings to in order to obtain righteousness from God, or trying to obtain righteousness from God, they have to do the whole thing, which obviously isn't going to work, which leads us to verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Now, be careful with this. Verse 4, again, taken out of context, can, uh, can lead to some misunderstanding. Christ is, be is become of no effect unto you. Who is the you? Who's the audience that Paul is addressing? He tells us very clearly in the next phrase, Whosoever of you are justified by the law. So there are people, were people, within the Galatian church or churches that claimed the law would justify them in the sight of God. Now, that crowd, this is an unsaved crowd. They are not under grace. They are under the law. Remember what Romans 6 verse 14 says. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Someone who has been saved is not under the law. They're under grace. So Paul, in, in Galatians 5 verse 4, he's talking to people that are not saved. Whosoever of you, so whoever among you Galatians that believe the law is how you get justified, he says, ye are fallen from grace. Now, people take that phrase by itself and they say, you see, you were in grace and now you fell out of grace. I don't think that's how Paul intended it. The people he's addressing were never under grace's system. So if you have grace here, they never achieved it. They were never under that system at all. They were striving for the righteousness that comes by grace, but never got to it and fell short of it. I think it ties very nicely to Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, sometimes people will translate that come short. They'll, it'll say fall short. But it's the same idea. We come short of the glory of God. Does that indicate that at one point we had achieved the glory of God? We had achieved the perfect image of, of, of Christ and that we fell from it? No. Paul's point in saying we've come short of the glory of God is we, we do not measure up to that perfect standard. And I think the same idea is being given here in, 
chapter 5 and verse 4. You're fallen from grace. It's not that they had achieved it and now fell out of it. The people who are trusting the law, they have fallen short of what grace has to offer. Now, this isn't a completely foreign thought. In, in the Bible, you find this wording in other places. I'll give you one example. Psalm chapter 30 and verse 3. David says there, O Lord, Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Now, if you just read that per portion of the verse, what would you think? You would think his soul was down in the grave and that the Lord brought it up. But the rest of the verse helps you interpret that. What did David mean? Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So, when he says, Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave, it never reached the grave. You kept me from it. And I, I think that's the, that's the idea that Paul's communicating in Galatians 5 and 4. Ye are fallen from grace. So those of you that are holding on to the law, you're not measuring up to what grace has to offer. You're fallen from it. Now, chapter 5 and verse 5. For we... Now notice the switch there. Very important. In verse 3... Every man that is circumcised, he's talking to that crowd, those that are trusting the law. Verse 4, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Verse 5, for we. He switches the pronoun so that you know there's a separate group being addressed. We. Now Paul's talking to people who are saved by faith under that system of grace. Verse 5, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, Paul is not saying that we hope one day we will be righteous. That, that's, that's how we use the word hope. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. The hope of righteousness, in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, it speaks there about how our body will be redeemed. That is the hope that we have, right? Titus 2, verse 13, talks about that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we wait for that, that event, by faith. That is, faith is what allows us to have that expectation. We have the Holy Spirit working in us because of that faith that, that we've placed in Christ and, and the faith of Jesus Christ that was given to us. So we, through the Spirit, wait. The Spirit does not lead us to go back to the law. The Spirit points us forward to the next event on God's calendar, the next big event, and that is the rapture. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That's the reason we have such a hope. Verse 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. So this is similar to what he said in Galatians 3, verse 28. In verse three, uh, chapter 3, 28, he's saying it doesn't matter what your cultural background is, it doesn't matter what your secular status is, doesn't matter what your gender is. None of that is going to make you any more or less of a Christian because you're in Christ. So verse 6 in, in chapter 5, in Jesus Christ, that cultural background isn't going to help you become a better person. It's not going to make you more important or less important in God's eyes. What is important? What does make a difference? It says in, at the end of verse 6, but faith which worketh by love, that makes a difference. That makes a difference.
So in Jesus Christ, faith which works by love, that, as I mentioned in Matthew class just now, we have those three levels to God's love. There's the basic level, God loves everybody, the world, and He's made salvation possible for everybody. If you accept that, you're in the second level, you're part of His family, part of His bride, He loves you in a special way. But then if you're obedient, this is faith which works by love, that, that can, it won't make you any more a part of Christ, but it will make your relationship with Christ better or stronger. It, that is what makes a difference. Faith which worketh by love. Faith works by love. Think of love as the motor in your faith. This love is our motivating factor. It pushes us, it constrains us, the Bible says, to do something with the faith that we have. Let me point out something very, I think, very important. I don't remember one verse in the Pauline epistles where, for that matter, any of the apostles. I say that now, I'd have to check this. So let me just stick with Paul. I don't remember Paul ever saying where he loved Christ, where he talks about his own love for Christ. But throughout the Pauline epistles, he talks about Christ's love for him. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth me. What motivates me? What pushes me to do something with the faith that I have? With the revelation that God has given me? It's this massive love that Christ has shown for me. And that He has for me. We love Him, the Bible says, because He first loved us. So, that, that is what drives us. It all starts with His love. So faith works by love. If you have left your first love, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is offended at that. He calls people to repent that have left their first love. He calls them to do the first work. Get, get, back, get back to those days when, when you were so excited about learning more from the Bible and about God and doing something with it. I don't want to make a sermon out of this, but there's a lot to say on that. Now, verse 7, Ye did run well, addressing the Galatians as, as a whole now. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So Paul realizes these guys were doing good. They were making progress in, the, in their spiritual lives, and then someone... Or, or some buddies got in the way. Somebody hindered them. And, and we know there were Judaizers that came in with false doctrine. Now, this is not an anomaly. It's not like that this was a problem in the early days of the church and it doesn't happen now. I have seen this happen over and over and over again. And if God calls you into the full-time ministry, you are going to see it over and over again. It's not an anomaly. This is the norm. When somebody gets saved, very shortly after that, there will be some sort of religious interference in that person's life. I mean, you can, you can just about count on it every time. Somebody will come up, I mean, this person, you know, been living a wicked life and doing all sorts of bad things, they get saved. And then they start to tell their friends, hey, man, I got saved. And all of a sudden, these friends that never talked to them about the gospel, never invited them to church, all of a the sudden, these friends now have something to say about God. 
So you got to say, oh, good. Hey, come to my church with me. They never discussed religious things before, and all of a sudden it pops up. I've seen it happen numerous times where somebody gets saved and then a complete stranger. Somehow, right? I think the devil's behind it, but somehow this complete stranger pops up and says, oh, you're saved. Good. Uh, what spiritual gift do you have? Have you spoken in tongues? Do you have a prophetic word? And they start pushing them and pressuring them to get into this whole spiritual gifts thing. And I, you know, that, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend a long time talking about that. I, I've just noticed that as soon as somebody gets saved, that seems to pop up. Somebody will come along and say, oh good, you're saved. Have you heard about the Sabbath day? Do you know about that? They, they never mentioned it before, but now they bring it up. I just recently, we had a young man get saved in our church, not uh, two or three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It's kind of hard to keep track of time with the, all this lockdown stuff. But this guy got saved. You know what happened the very next week? He said, preacher, I'll be at church. He didn't pitch up that Sunday. You know what happened? One of his family members said, hey, why don't you come to my church instead? I think it was a cousin of his. Why all of a sudden, why then? Why had they not spoken to this guy before? But you'll find it. As soon as somebody gets serious about the Lord, then the devil will be sure to send a hindrance, a roadblock, an obstacle of some sort. Now, how do you keep your converts from getting entangled by these hinderers, by these heretics, false preachers, whatever, you want to, whatever category you want to put on that? He says in verse 7 that you should not obey the truth. Once somebody gets saved, immediately they need to be discipled. Immediately. They need to start getting rooted and grounded in the truth so that when the winds of false doctrine begin to blow, they do not get blown away. Right? This is something we cover in basic discipleship. And in, in the book of Ephesians, you'll, you'll cover those verses again. In verse 8, he, Paul says, This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. It is not the Spirit of God calling you to go back under the law. Even though these Judaizers were passionate and they carried Bibles and they quoted verses and they talked about God, they were wrong. Right? Chapter 4, you remember chapter 4, verse 17 and 18? These Judaizers zealously affected the Galatians. They, they were excited. They came in and preached. It was a big thing. He says, guys, you might be persuaded, but it's not of God. It's not of God. He say, but they're so sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. Uh, verse 9, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now, leaven is used uh, in, in two different places, once by Jesus, once by Paul, to refer to something bad. In, in, uh, for, in Matthew chapter, forgive me, chapter 15, I think it is going to find it now. No, no, I'm sorry. Matthew 16, verse 12. Jesus talks about leaven there. He uses it as a metaphor for the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So false doctrine. That's leaven. And then in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, Paul talks about sin in the church and he uses leaven as a metaphor for that wickedness in the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In this case, I think it pertains more to, to the heresy that was being spread around. But Paul, what Paul's getting at is, guys, it doesn't take a lot of heresy to get you pointed in the wrong direction. 
I hope you've been following along with the sermons at church. I preached a sermon a couple weeks ago out of Matthew 5 about guaranteed greatness. And in that sermon, Jesus, I mentioned how Jesus talked about the least things, right? He says, if, if you do, if you teach and do that which is least, then you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. Getting even the smaller things right. This is not to say we need to overemphasize small things, but guys, you, the idea of saying it doesn't matter what we believe, it, it does matter what we believe. What we believe affects how we live. Now, I realize we need to have grace with people. I realize that there are some gray areas, right, where the scripture is not clear on something, and, and we, we need to be gracious in those times. But there are some things that are just clear. And those things that are black and white spelled out in the Bible, we need to get them right in our own hearts. Now, please understand, I'm, I'm not trying to, to stir up a pot here where you uh, spew hatred towards people that don't agree with you. That, I'm, not, I'm not advocating that. Just because you disagree with somebody does not mean you can treat them disrespectfully, right? However, you shouldn't hesitate to point out when somebody's wrong. Jesus did it all the time. When he spoke to the scribes and Pharisees, it was quite pointed. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Ye fools, ye blind guides. He said what needed to be said. He used some rather strong, pointed language. And there are times when that's necessary. I don't think we should constantly be going around just looking for that opportunity. But sometimes it's necessary. You'll see it now in Paul's, Paul's writing here. Verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord. Be careful for that prepositional phrase, through the, through the Lord. If it wasn't for the Lord, Paul probably wouldn't have confidence in him, right? I don't have any confidence in myself outside of the Lord. If he, if, if he, leaves, it, if he leaves me to myself, I'll make a mess of everything. But I have confidence in you through the Lord. I can say that about, about our church. I have confidence in the people in our church. I believe we've got a lot of folks that are hungry for the Lord and want to learn and want to want to grow, and even on those areas where you might not agree with everything that gets taught from our pulpit, I have confidence that somebody who is willing to learn, somebody who's willing to change, somebody who's humble enough to be taught, I have confidence that that person who is in submission to the Lord will eventually see the truth. And even if we never agree, I have confidence that if they follow the Lord, they're not going to cause trouble in the church. Now, bear in mind, I'm aware of the fact that there are people in our church that don't agree with everything that I teach. I'm probably more aware of it than those people think. And believe me, I keep an eye open for it. It always concerns me when the people that don't agree with me don't come to me and say, Pastor, uh, I've heard you say this. I've always understood it differently. Can we please discuss this? That, that would be a, a very acceptable way to handle that. It concerns me, though, when they talk to all the other members in the church about it. And when those members say, well, why don't you ask Pastor Mike? They say, no, I don't want to talk to him about it. Hmm. Anyway, back to the verse. I have confidence in you through the Lord. So, I believe you guys will get it right if, if 
you will stay in submission to the Lord. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. So I, there might have been some big name Judaizing preachers, right? Very popular preachers. And Paul says, I don't care who they are. If they're leading you guys astray, God will punish them. Now, whatever the punishment needs to be, right? If it's a lost person, then that, there's a separate punishment uh, or a certain punishment for them. A saved person who teaches heresy. There's a, of course, he's not in danger of hell, but uh, a saved person who teaches certain heresies, there's a, a chance of possibly losing rewards and it can affect that. But whatever the judgment is, whatever the punishment is, um, Paul says he's certainly going to get it. In verse 11, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Now this statement leads me to believe that there were people within that Galatian region or those, those churches that were trying to mix the two systems to say what the Judaizers are preaching and what Paul is preaching, ah, I think we can make it all go together. You know, that happens a lot within the body of Christ. People try to say, eh, let's just get all the religions together. That's not going to work. If, if people believe differently, there's, that's what causes the divisions is the different beliefs. But it, it sounds as if people were saying, no, no, even within Paul's system, even within his gospel and what he's preaching, we can put circumcision in there. I think we can fit the idea of Judaism into Paul's preaching. Paul says, guys, if that fits in my preaching, if I preach that still, why am I being persecuted? So the evidence that circumcision and that whole lifestyle, that, that system of the law, the evidence that that system has no place within his preaching is the fact that he is persecuted. If he were pre preaching circumcision, then he would be able to get along with these people and say, yeah, no problem. And they would have no problem with Paul. Everybody would get along. But the fact that they, they didn't like him and that they cast him out of their presence and uh, said all manner of evil against him falsely, that kind of thing, that was evidence that what he was preaching was directly against what the other people were preaching. At the end of verse 11, then is the offense of the cross ceased. So the cross, preaching the cross, is offensive. It's offensive. Not in the sense that it's rude or mean, not like that. It's offensive in that it does not allow for a man, for a person to glory. It takes away boasting. And when you tell a person, listen, the best you can do is not enough. That's, that's the offensive part. People get offended at that. It's not that the intention of the gospel is to offend people. It's that when you tell people that their system in which they trust is not the right one, and that is why Jesus had to die on the cross, because that system is not enough. Your righteousness is not enough. That's why an innocent man had to die in your place. That gets offensive. And even to this day, doesn't matter what the religion is, you tell a man, listen, Islam will not get you there. Catholicism won't get you there. Being a Baptist won't get you there. People say, but I was born in this, and I was raised, and I've always been this. And Do you mean to say that my grandma, my great-grandma, because they were all this way too? It can get very offensive. And again, not, not in a rude or a mean way, 
is just in a very factual and honest way. And I think it would be appropriate to say here that sometimes the truth hurts. In verse 12, Paul says, I would, they were even cut off, which trouble you. That's strong language. That is strong language. I would, they were cut off. Now, the Greek word behind this cut off is the same word that it could also be thought of as amputate or castrate. I mean, it's, it's a strong word. There's two ways that I believe this could be applied, and I think both, both things might be true. Paul might have, he might have meant both. Cut off, that is excommunicated from the church. I would that you would just kick these people out of the church so that they quit bothering you. I think that definitely applies. But the other way you might understand this is Paul saying, I, it wouldn't bother me if these people died. Now you say, oh, that's harsh, that's harsh. But wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that's harsh. I know that's drastic, kind of like Matthew 5, saying cut something off so that, your whole, so that the rest of your body can go into the kingdom, right? You leave behind one member. That's drastic too. But in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, Paul did say, Somebody that's often sent, deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh. So if you have one deceiver that is bewitching hundreds of people, now if this person were to be taken out of the way by the Lord, hundreds of people would be able to see the truth. And, and may not be led astray. So I know that's harsh to say, yo, it's, we'd rather have this guy out of the, uh, cut off, that is, die. But if it, if it could prevent hundreds or even thousands of other people going to hell, then that seems like a legitimate trade-off. Obviously, that's not the best case scenario. What we'd like to see is this deceiver get saved. I mean, that's, that, that's our first option. But Paul has obviously dealt with these deceivers. He's tried to, to tell them the truth. They didn't want it. So rather than have his churches destroyed, Paul would rather have these deceivers either kicked out or taken out by the Lord. Uh, verse 13, For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Now, we've already spoken a little bit about this liberty in verse 1. You have been set free from sin. You can walk in newness of life. Paul is going to give us a warning about this liberty. So we stand fast in it. I, I, I stand here with no shame to say I'm under grace. God is treating me better than I deserve. But don't abuse that. Verse 13 says, Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now this... This verse, guys, it, it, it teaches us something very important. If you have liberty, that, that is not a license to sin. It is freedom to love people. You didn't have that freedom under the old system. Under the old system, you were in bondage to sin. You served your, the lust of your flesh and all of that. But Paul says don't abuse it. Don't use this liberty for an occasion to the flesh, which means Christians can do that. I, l let me reword that. It is possible that a Christian could do this. 
He shouldn't. He shouldn't. But it is possible. Now, as we progress through this chapter, you're going to see this a little bit more in verse number 17. But a Christian under grace, should he continue in sin? Romans 6, God forbid, right? We've covered this before. And, and we'll cover it again when we get to it in Romans 6. But that's the thought he's getting here. Guys, use this liberty not to say, I'm free from the payment of sin, from the power. I can do whatever I want. Not, that's not it. You are free now to serve God and love others. You're not in bondage to sin. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. We would say in one saying, right? One word. Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So this is why he said, but by love serve one another. Why focus in on that? Why just say love one another? Because if you fulfill that, then you won't break any of the other laws that you find in the Old Testament pertaining to your neighbor. In Romans 13, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, the moral laws, the moral laws, not the ceremonial laws. But if you love one another, you love your neighbor like you should, then you're not going to kill them, you're not going to commit adultery, you're not going to steal from them. All of those things get taken care of simply through love. So the commandment that we have in, in the New Testament, 1 John 3, I believe it's verse 23. Let me make sure for you. 1 John 3, 23. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Those are our marching orders. Believe on Christ, love, love people the way He loved us. If you do that, you're not going to be breaking any laws. You're, you're going to treat people right. Verse 15, Galatians 5:15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. So within this church, there's a lot of backbiting going on. People gossiping about others and taking little cheap shots at people, calling them names, whatever it is. One bite here, devour is like a big bite. You can just think of it like that. So one bite, one big bite. And that's how fighting goes. That's how gossip often works, right? When people start whispering, he'll say a little thing and then so he adds to it, and then an even bigger comeback, and it just gets bigger and bigger as it goes. It gets, it gets ugly. Paul says, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You're going to completely destroy each other. Guys, this is so true within a church. When that love is not present in, in a church, when you're not thinking about edifying your brother, building him up, but rather biting him and taking him down so that you can look better, that attitude will completely destroy a church. Even if you continue to meet, right? Even if everybody keeps showing up, the, the attitude, the spirit of that church is just going to be completely wrong. You'd be better off shutting it down. In verse number 16, this I say then. So here's Paul's advice. How do you overcome in the Christian life? Here it comes. Walk in the spirit. Okay, so you don't have to walk after the law. Walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, the order of this, I think, is very important. Walk in the Spirit. If you concentrate on what the Holy Spirit wants you to do, communing with the Holy Ghost, then you are not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't turn it around. 
a lot of people do with good intentions, but, but I, the wrong way to do it. They focus on their weaknesses and say, okay, I don't want to sin. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And they, they try to put all these barriers in their life and they're, it's a noble effort, but they're trying to overcome the lust of the flesh with a set of rules. And in so doing, their focus, all they're thinking about is that sin. Rather, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Concentrate on the Lord. And then the temptation for sin, it'll still be there, but you have the very best preventative measure there is, and that is the Lord as your focus. Dr. Ruckman used to tell us all the time, the most difficult thing in the Christian life is to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And he's right. He, I've found that to be very true. Walk in the Spirit. Make that primary. That's first. And then the sins of the flesh, they will, I don't want to say take care of themselves, but they're not going to be the problem that they, they could be if your focus is where it needs to be. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, you can think of the Spirit envelop, uh, enveloping you. And as this, you're inside, right? And here the Spirit is, is around you. I hesitate to say like a bubble, but you understand what I mean. He's around you. And as He moves, you move. You walk in the Spirit. He puts His hand out, you put your hand out. If His feet go, your feet go. If He starts to speak, you start to speak. You walk in the Spirit. This is another way of saying yield to the Holy Ghost. Uh, the other day, Amy and I, we were dancing in our, in our home. So I, I can't remember if we had music on or if I was humming something, whatever the case was. I had her stand on my feet. And every time I would move, of course, with her standing on my feet, she moved with me. As I flowed one way, she flowed one way. And when my hands went, of course, we were holding hands, and then uh, our hands would move together. And it dawned on me, this is a wonderful illustration of walking in the Spirit. I, I want to put my feet on God's feet and say, now God, you lead. You lead. I'll let you choose which way we flow. In verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Let me slip in before I explain this verse. The attendance code for this class is Romans 6, verse 14. Romans 6, verse 14. Now, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. These are the two natures, and they are constantly fighting within us. You have the old man and the new man. Uh, this has often been illustrated as a, a black dog and a white dog. And please don't see any racist overtones in that. It's just, listen, it's two dogs. But you got the old nature, you got this black dog, you got this new nature, you got this white dog, and these dogs are constantly fighting. Whichever dog you feed the most, he will be stronger and he will win. If you feed the flesh, the flesh will overcome. If you feed the spirit, then your spiritual life will grow. You'll overcome the lust of the flesh. But these two natures are present in every Christian. You say, I don't know how somebody could be saved and do that. 
I've heard that so many times. How could he be saved and do that? Because he has a fleshly nature. When you get saved, your sinful nature did not leave. Joseph Prince and some others, they, they teach that Christ eradicated that old nature. When Jesus died for the sins of mankind, they say he, he took that sin away. Guys, he didn't take your sinful nature away. It's still inside of you, and it fights against that new nature so that you cannot do the things that you would. How many times have you thought, man, I, I'm going to stop this and start living for God, or I'm going to make a better effort at doing these godly things, and then it didn't pan out? It's because you have an old nature. It's not because you're not saved. It's because you have an old nature. This verse actually helped me in the most tremendous way because for about two years after I got saved, I doubted my salvation tremendously. You can ask Christina. I would come home from Bible school. In my first year of Bible school, I would come home at night I would get down on my knees and I would be in tears and she'd be sitting on the couch and I would beg her, please just tell me I'm saved because, I, oh, it troubled me so much. I, I kept wondering, am I saved? Am I not saved? Did I do it right? Did I pray right? Is Jesus really in there? And I was looking for confirmation. I was looking for answers. I asked various preachers. I asked my pastor. I asked my teachers in Bible school. None of them could help me with a clear answer for this. And then one day I was reading along and I got to this verse and it just hit me right there. If I didn't have two natures, I couldn't be having this struggle within. The fact that I have an internal, internal struggle, two things fighting against each other, that means the new nature is in there. I don't know why it, it never dawned on me like that, but the fact, I, before I received Christ as my Savior, I never doubted my salvation. I never thought about it. I, I never went back and forth, am I saved, am I not saved? I never thought about that. I never thought, did I do it right? Did I accept Christ correctly? I never thought about that. But now that I'm saved, the Holy Spirit's within, and the Holy Spirit says, you're a child of God. You have been accepted in the Beloved. You're one of ours. And then my old nature would say, yeah, but you probably didn't do it right. Yeah, but you didn't pray right. The fact that I had that internal struggle was evidence that I am truly saved. So the very thing the devil and my flesh was trying to do to stop me from growing and confuse me is the very thing God used to prove that I am indeed saved, that I do have the Spirit within. Verse 18, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So one of the privileges of being saved is that you are able to be led of the Spirit. Those that are trusting in the law, they don't have that privilege. So th this is more of a standing type of a statement. Uh, if you are saved, then you can be led of the Spirit. If you're not saved, you're under the law. You don't have access to that. Verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, so they're clear. He says, you want to know what it looks like if somebody is yielded to the flesh? These are the kind of things that that person does. Now, notice here it'll say the works of the flesh, but in verse 22, it'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit. There's, I believe, a reason Paul uses different words for that. 
but somebody who's living after the flesh, these are the kind of things that he will do. Adultery. Now, most of these things are very clear, so I'm going to move a little bit quickly. Um, I don't think I need to explain them in depth. Adultery. So this is sex with another married person. Fornication. This most often we we use this word to refer to sex outside of marriage, but fornication can be a very broad uh, topic that can cover sexual immorality of many kinds. Uncleanness. Again, that's very broad. Uncleanness, it, it is in a sexual manner here. You can read Leviticus 18. There's a list of unclean things like incest, bestiality, all that stuff. Uh, it would fall under that category. Lasciviousness. This is a sexual lust, not so much the physical act of doing something, but the lust in someone's heart. Uh, and, and that does come out, right? You can see people do act on those lusts. So, Verse 20, it says idolatry. Uh, this is putting something in the place of God, giving something the attention that only God deserves. Idolatry, witchcraft. Oh, witchcraft, it, it, sorcery, um, the sangoma, this is witchcraft. The Greek word behind this is pharmakia, which uh, was where we get the word pharmacy from. So, but just we would think of this as using potions, that kind of thing. That's why it's tied to witchcraft. Now, this might be strange when you think about it as a work of the flesh, but the reason the flesh would use witchcraft is because it wants to manipulate the spiritual realm to get what it wants. So that's why it would be a work of the flesh. Hatred, this... Um, Again, it can be very broad, but just angry without a cause, as we've studied tonight in Matthew. Uh, the next one is variance. Variance is having a sharp argument or contention with someone. After variance, emulations. Emulations is when you strive to prove that you're as good or better than someone else. So having this silly contest to see who's better. E emulate also, you're trying to act like someone. So the way we use the word emulate in our modern-day English, it's not always a bad thing. Uh, you can emulate somebody's good behavior, but the way Paul uses it here is, is that you're trying to copy them to prove that you're just as good or better. So there's jealousy involved in it. Emulations, wrath, this will tie in with the uh, hatred, but this is wrath speaks more to like a fiery temper, having a quick temper. Strife, just fighting with people, whether physically or verbally. Seditions, uh, this is when you lead a rebellion or cause a split. You can split a church. You can split two friends. There's lots of ways that seditions can happen. Uh, heresies, these are false teachings. Uh, usually, when you think of heresies as a work of the flesh, somebody is twisting the Scripture to get what they want or to support whatever, whatever they're doing. Uh, verse 21, envyings. Envy is that small feeling of uneasiness that you get when someone else achieves something and you wish you had the spotlight rather than them. That's envy. Murders, that's obvious. Drunkenness, that's obvious. Revelings, that's like having a party. Um, it's, it's interesting. The Greek word for this is komos. The root of it is komos, like commotion, big commotion. And when, when you look in the Greek lexicon, it'll say, as in letting loose. So people say, I just want to go to the party and just let my hair down, let loose. Um, yeah, partying, like going out to the taverns and stuff, that's revelings. And uh, that's a work of the flesh. 
And then he says, and such like. So anything that might fit in with this category or under this category. He says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's two ways um, that we can understand this. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a similar list. He talks about adulterers, fornicators, effeminate, murder, all of this. And he says, these people, the unrighteous, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So, someone who is not saved is not going to enter the kingdom of God. Someone who's not saved is going to live after the flesh, and they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So that, if you want to take it and apply it to a lost man, that fits. But what about a saved man who yields to the flesh and doesn't yield to the Spirit? He's under grace, but he is somewhat abusing that grace. Well, how do we understand it in light of that? Does, does this indicate that he's lost his salvation and he won't um, have eternal life? Notice what it says. It says that they which do such things shall not inherit. It doesn't say shall not enter. There's a difference. So if somebody is saved and lives after the flesh, then that person will lose rewards. And part of losing the rewards is they will lose the inheritance in the kingdom. That is, they will not reign with Christ in the kingdom. They won't have authority over ten cities or five or even one. They'll just be in the kingdom. In uh, Colossians 3, verse number 24, he says, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Well, if you turn that around, if you don't serve the Lord Christ, then you don't get the reward of the inheritance. So, plugging that idea into Galatians 5.21, somebody that lives after the flesh, they could potentially lose rewards. And that is, they don't get that inheritance in the kingdom. They're, they're in it, but they're not ruling. All right, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh, this is what a person does. He just does what he does. He just does what's natural to him. The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit indicates a seed was planted, and now a vine dresser or a husbandman is watering the seed and helping it grow. It, it implies some involvement from an outside source, whereas the works of the flesh is just you doing what you do. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, again, these things are, are I, I hope, obvious um, and familiar to you, but let me break them down. The fruit of the Spirit, notice that he doesn't mention tongues. The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that someone has yielded to the Spirit is not tongues. He doesn't talk about spiritual gifts in this passage. If somebody's yielded to the Spirit, these virtues are clear, clearly shown in his life. Love, that's putting others before yourself. Joy, this is an excited happiness, a delight of the mind, a steady happiness you might think of. Peace is the next thing. This is a quiet inner stillness. Long-suffering, this is patience. Gentleness, this is, and a lot of these overlap, right? Gentleness and, and long-suffering go hand in hand. But if someone's gentle, it's the opposite of being harsh. You deal with, uh, with people and with situations with great care. You, you, you deal patiently with them. 
uh, goodness. That is just seeking to, to help, seeking to be a blessing. That's a, a very broad category. And then faith. This is believing God, believing what He said, trusting His promises. If somebody is yielded to the Spirit, these are the things that you're going to see evidenced in that person's life. Meekness in the next verse. Uh, meekness is reacting patiently, gently, or mildly when provoked. So if somebody does something that um, they've wronged you, they're nasty towards you, you do not fire back at them. Rather, you take that patiently. That's being meek. And then temperance is self-control. Uh, it's living a disciplined life, not giving in to doing whatever is convenient, but doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Meekness and temperance. Against such, there is no law. So the Judaizers, their big thing was, hey, we've got to fulfill the law. We've got to do everything God told us to do. And Paul is saying, I have the best way of accomplishing that. The best way to accomplish everything the law has to say is to walk in the Spirit and by doing so, you'll love each other. You'll have joy, peace, meekness, gentle. All of this stuff will be manifest, and you won't be breaking any laws. There's no laws against the things the Spirit would lead a person to do. Now, just for the sake of interest, let me quickly point this out before we wrap this up. Um, the number nine in the Bible, each number, or I should say certain numbers, seem to signify certain things in the Bible. The number nine goes with fruit. And we just don't have time to get into all the various examples of this, but you can see it over and over again, the number nine being connected to fruit. Now, interestingly enough, Galatians is the ninth book of the Bible. There are nine things mentioned as the fruit of the Spirit. You can count them if you'd like. And strangely enough, it's in Galatians 5, Verse 22 is where you see the word fruit mentioned there. Five plus two plus two is nine. That, I don't know. It's just one of those strange coincidences. I wouldn't teach a doctrine based off of numerology, but it is kind of interesting to notice those things. All right, verse 24. And they that are Christ's, so you belong to Him, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. This is our standing. This is our standing. Now, remember, there's a difference between standing and state. Your standing is the old man is crucified with Christ. The, he's buried. He's gone. That's your standing. That's how God views it. Now, we need to apply that doctrinal truth. We need to apply the way God looks at us. So, in God's eyes, my flesh is crucified. The affections and lust are gone. They're dead. Now, I need to reckon myself to be dead and unto sin and alive unto God. I need to apply it. There's no doubt that Paul is, is telling us this because in the next verse he says, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. This is, in my opinion, the best verse for showing the difference between standing and state. Your standing is you live in the Spirit. He is your life source. Let us also walk in the Spirit. That's your state. This is step by step. You need to yield to the Holy Ghost. So take these doctrinal truths, take what God has done, and make it a daily application. Verse 26, Let us not be desirous of vain glory. The Judaizers were after that. Provoking one another 
envying one another. So everybody wanted to be viewed as important. What about me? Look at how great I am. And Paul says, guys, this links back to verse 15, biting and devouring one another. You chomp down on them so they look small so that you can look bigger. Um, Don't say something so that you can trap the other guy and try to try to get him to sound confused and and sound silly in a you know in a public setting people do that all the time they like to they they wait to ask the difficult question until you're in front of everybody and then they spring it on you why why do it then why not ask me something difficult privately so that we can uh, discuss all the nuances of it it really does make me question one's motive when they do that uh, don't, don't try to pull the worst out of people. When you find your, don't compare yourself among yourselves. What's, measure yourself by yourself. Paul says that's not wise. Within the church, within any group, you want to edify. You want to try to build these people up. So it's the exact opposite of what Paul's mentioned in verse 26. Vainglory is building yourself up. But the Spirit and love would lead you to build others up and help help them. Not, not so that you uh, give them unnecessary glory, that kind of thing. You don't want to puff them up with pride and, and give, use flattering words, but build them up so that they can also uh, serve Christ, love Him better. The word provoke, I think, is interesting. Provoking one another. You can provoke them to vain glory and something bad, or Hebrews 10 verse 24, you can provoke them unto love and to good works. And of course, that's what Paul is aiming us or wanting us to do. All right, we're going to stop there for tonight. We finished chapter five. Uh, be sure to send that attendance code in through the church, uh, to the church email or to the, I'm sorry, church phone. I keep hitting the table. Uh, I appreciate everybody coming to class tonight as much as you can come. I hope this has helped. If you have any questions, please feel free to send it uh, to me. You can send it to my phone or to the email and I'll do my best to help you out. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening uh, for the privilege of going through this information. And Lord, it is. It's a good reminder. Galatians 5 is such a helpful chapter for how to get victory in the Christian life. Lord, you don't lead us to just follow a, a set of rules. You walk with us every step of the way and show us what to do every day, every moment. Thank you, Lord, for being ever-present in our lives. Help us, help us, God, to apply what you've done, to live that crucified life and live it in joy and enjoy this freedom you've given us to serve others. Thank you for this time tonight. Please, Lord, let the seed that has been sown sink deep into good ground that it might bring forth fruit unto thee. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, Lord willing, we'll see you men. We have a men's meeting on Saturday morning at 10, and then the rest of you, I believe, will see you on Sunday morning. Take care.